you know what I wish? No. I wish we had a studio for this podcast because... I bet the listeners do as well. I, I, I think so, yeah. Well, first of all, the benefit for them would be that... It this wouldn't would, sound like pants. It, it wouldn't sound like it sounds r- like right now. Uh, but also, on the other hand, there wouldn't be board games literally on the floor. I guess maybe it's more like the grass is greener on the other side kind of thing, where we think if we have a studio, there wouldn't be board games yeah, there on would. the floor. You know there would. There would There's be board, board games. games everywhere in our house. This is, it, it, I think we always sort of get to that stage where we're like, no, we're going to marry Kondo this away. And, it, you know, like donate some board games to some board game cafes or or some clubs that need more board games or whatever. Uh, but but then somehow there's more board games and more of the floor space is taken up by board games. Uh, our dog has learned to navigate around board games. Um, and cables, actually. And cables, well, yeah. yeah, because the recording equipment is also at times everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we shot our last video, it was... Uh, it was up for quite long, the whole, you know, like lighting rigs and uh, cameras and all the cables and stuff. And when we packed all of that away, I literally saw my dog breathe, breathe a sigh of relief. And then she was like, oh, the floor is free. I'm going to play now. <laughs> Poor dog. <laughs> and she had this wonderful play session just by herself. Didn't uh-huh. even need us, right? It was like, yes, there are no more board games or cables in the way I can just play. So maybe if we had a studio, our dog would be happier. It's enough about the dog for today. Should we get on with the podcast? Please. Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent with the double ease of cardboarding, Elaine and... Efka. Nice. Well done. On today's show, we'll be talking about canvas, heat, subtitle, pedal to the metal, but metal, metal, metal to metal, whatever, turncoats and votes for women, as well as correspondence from you lovely people and FK interviews, Jesse Gender. Also known as Jesse Earl. But first, let's go through some of the thoughts you've had regarding the games we spoke about in the last podcast. We've had this from Twitter. Dan says... Love the episode! I don't know why I said it like that, I'm sorry. Uh, When you mentioned Nightfall being the only retail game, did you know it originally started as a failed Kickstarter called Rift Nights? I did not know that. Isn't that fun? Thank you very much for letting us know that all the games we have now are delivered through crowdfunding. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Unless they somehow fail and then they just come out anyway. If there's not a lesson to be learned there... I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Moving on. Jack says, I suspect the colour scheme of resist is a reference to the colours of the Spanish Republican flag. So I, I guess that makes me feel a little bit like a twit because... <laughs> it makes me feel the need to hang up my vexillologist award medal oh, that, yeah, I, you're really, that I've had since I was 11 years old. You're really into flags. I keep forgetting this. Yeah, I, I don't know I, why. I was, yeah. When I was when I was a kid, I was super into them, yeah. Like around the age of 11, 12, 30. I, yeah, I was, I was part of two. I was part of NAVA, uh, which was the North American Vexillological Association, and also the Flag Institute, which is the British one. I'm literally I was, learning I was about this for the first time. <laughs> I was a member of both of those. Um, But to be fair, I don't know or I never knew very much about kind of non-country flags. The only ones Mm. that I did know a bit more about were the Soviet Republic flags. Right. Only because the first flag book that I bought uh, was from like, 
the 70s and it wasn't very, you know, modern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it had all these countries in it that were Soviet republics. I don't even remember what the Soviet Lithuanian flag was like. I just remember that it had red in it because all of them did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they all had red and then like something for the country. Mm. But yeah, they were all quite similar. So you didn't know that this flag had that color scheme? Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, so we can be excused, I guess, right? (laughs) But it's nice to learn and it gives even more uh, gravitas to the artwork. Oh, for sure, yeah. I love it when games do that, when they have something that is part of the theme as part of the game. Well, we're going to talk more about that in one of the games we are covering today. Let's talk about a game that holds the unique accolade of being the only box that comes with a little hole in it so you can mount it on a wall. I am, of course, talking about Canvas. Canvas comes from publisher Road to Infamy Games by designers Jeff Chin, Andrew Nerger and artist Luan Huynh. You know the hole in the box thing? That mm. that might be just about, I think, one of the best things about Canvas. I mean, any game could be, you know, a game you hang on the wall if you put your own hole in it. But yeah, it's I'm the not, only one that comes with it. That's I true. Think. I'm not going to spend long talking about Canvas. I did not exactly enjoy my time with it, but also I didn't mind it. And I think, so there's this movement uh, lately within the board game publishing world where uh, there's a consensus reach that basically if your game doesn't have a gimmick, it's not going to sell well, right? Mm -hmm. So every game has a gimmick now. And usually that gimmick is a gimmick component, right? So uh, for example, uh, in uh, Wingspan, you have a couple of gimmick components. You have the eggs which Mm -hmm. are like actual eggs that Mm -hmm. you put down and they Mm -hmm. look like mini eggs Uh, and then you also have the bird feeder cardboard dice tower thing where you put the dice and then they roll but you know that sort of thing is fine i think there's nothing wrong with a nice gimmick component because board games are tactile things and you know you do engage with them and if you get to engage with them in a fun way then that's exciting canvas also has that the premise of canvas is that you have Uh, artwork on transparent sleeves and uh, this artwork is incomplete and you also have a card that's sort of like the background in a sleeve so and then you have these transparent cards and you and you put them all in and you combine three cards and it makes a whole painting effectively out of the various elements that you've collected Uh, and collected being the keyword here because this is effectively sort of a set collection game where each element that you pick up on these transparent cards uh it'll have a number of symbols and you will also have scoring conditions uh and you have to uh basically get your painting to have the combination of symbols that is going to provide you with the most points from Mm -hmm. that painting uh but there's an additional kicker so you have free paintings that you're going to be composing throughout the course of the entire game. And uh, you are also restricted, uh, each turn you're going to pick either a card from a uh, tableau of these transparent cards uh, that have the uh, partial artwork and the symbols, or or you're going to put one of, uh, put the cards that you've collected in into this painting and complete it. You can only have up to five of these transparent cards in your hand, so the more and more you collect, the more you're restrained into what can go into this painting. And you are trying to eke out the most points. But on top of that, the scoring conditions get progressively better if you succeed on achieving them on multiple paintings. 
So uh, not only are you trying to get the most scoring conditions, you're also trying to be consistent with your artwork. Uh, and the way you take these cards, there's a very simple Century uh, Spice Road-like mechanism where there's like a sliding conveyor of cards. The first one is cheap. Uh, you can pick it up for nothing. But the more you go further down the line, the more you have to put these... Inspiration. Yeah, they're like little little paint palette tokens mm -hmm. or something like that. And there's a closed economy of them in the game where like you start with four, but the more you put down, the less you have. But then if your opponents pick up the cards that you've put down the paint palettes on, then they get to keep them. And, and so you're, you're, you're constantly balancing this like... Can I take the card that I want or can I take the card that I afford? And it's fine. It's it's nothing innovative. I think the most joy that it brought me was combining these paintings. Mm -hmm. And that's where the gimmick part comes in because they're, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say they're good paintings, but, but the artwork is nice and pleasant. And uh, when you do combine them, oftentimes you find yourself combining them into something that's, a bit kitsch, but kitsch in that sort of way that is pleasing, where it's like, you know, oh, the silent revolution or whatever mm -hmm. like that. Because e each each uh, artwork card also has like a tagline. So when you combine the three, one of the words is going to get overlaid, but two of them hopefully are going to be visible and it's going to make uh, like... Um, Frivolous apathy. Yeah, something like that, right? Or, or you know... Uh, freedom darkness or something mm -hmm. like that and you have like this sort of like let's say birdcage that's open but it's surrounded by this black outline mm -hmm. you know or whatever and and you know you you effectively i guess it's kind of <laughs> this is not going to be a favorable comparison but i guess it's a little bit like ai art where you put in a prompt ai art yeah, yeah. and it makes you the artwork mm -hmm. so that's sort of what you're doing in this game. You're taking someone else's art. And, and putting it together. Putting it together, putting prompts and going, I made it's that. It's like a collage. Yeah, That's it is. That's what you're making. Yeah, like it a is a collage. I, I, I think it's a disservice to this game to compare it to AI art. I think art so too. Because I think there's, there's more art that you output from this than you ever do from AI art. That's my controversial take uh -huh. on AI art. I liked the artwork in this game. I thought yeah, that yeah. was the best part about it. That was the most interesting part for me the the game overall was was fine like mm -hmm. you said but the combination of what words am i going to put with other words and make this nonsense phrase is it going to go with what i've actually collaged here or not i think uh for me that was juxtaposed by uh how tight the system felt and the system really is tight mm -hmm. because i mentioned the words closed economy mm -hmm. and simple game and it's it's it is really restrained. You oftentimes cannot get what you want to make a painting that feels satisfying points wise, mm -hmm. and that felt especially true in the two player game. Now there are rules for a sort of solo AI bot called and Vincent, uh, and they were they were very simple. So the next time we played it, we implemented that. Mm. And you preferred that, I think. I did you? prefer that because mm -hmm. what the AI bot does effectively is is it takes cards away from the tableau. Mm -hmm. it, it simulates someone taking a card, effectively. So new, more new ones get put out. Yeah, and at that point, the game felt a little bit freer and a little bit more forgiving. I suspect this is probably best with four, where the tableau moves at a brisk pace and then you can see something maybe far ahead and think, oh, do I have to risk my paint palettes to take it or uh, does someone else want it so i think 
I think this game is maybe a little bit more vibrant with uh, more people okay. interacting. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think the main appeal of it is the gimmick. If you like the sound of this gimmick, putting transparent cards together to make artwork that has a kitschy name and maybe, you know, like sort of kitschy expression, uh, then you're going to have a good time with it. There's nothing that it does that isn't somehow, you know, just broken or doesn't work or whatever. It's fine. It works. It functions, right? Uh, and it's easy to get into. Yeah, the rules are very simple. Uh, and, and, and there are these moments where you're like, how am I ever going to combine these scoring conditions that say, oh, have like, you know... Um, uh, this symbol on every art card that mm. you have or whatever. I don't know. I, I don't remember the scoring conditions. There are a lot of them. They're varied. They are <laughs> but fine. that was good because it changed up the game every time we played. Yeah. We, we have different uh, scoring conditions. Uh, we, mm. we cheated a little bit because I was like, oh, we've had these ones. Let's put yeah, new yeah. ones. But that made the game feel a bit different. I mean, you're still doing the same things, mm. but you had different goals. And I was confused because I was like, oh, yeah, I know what the goal is. Oh, no, I don't because it's, this is, that was the last game. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I think the game is f fine. You know, I, uh, I can see people who want it liking it. Mm. I, I don't think it does anything that is, you know, that stands out as, oh, I don't like this, or, oh, this is a bad mechanism. It's okay. It, it, it does what it does. I just, I'm just not looking for what it does, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. I'm interested to see what the expansions do with it. We haven't tried those. No. There is one already available and, and one, coming uh, out one coming out this year. Uh, variety is, I imagine, what they will add are more painting cards, which I think is what people will probably... And different goals as well. Uh, and different goals, yes. Mm. Uh, I think that's probably what people are going to want and that's what it's going to add. For me, it, it just lacked a bit of interest. That's it. I would it. quite happily play this game again. I think I'm okay. Still to come, we have turncoats and votes for women, as well as an interview with Jesse Gender and some of your correspondents. But first, we are putting pedal to the metal with heat. Heat comes from publisher Days of Wonder by designers Asger Harding Granerud, Daniel Skjold Peterson, and artist Vincent Dutre. Well, let us be the last people in the world to say that heat is indeed very, 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 very good. Mm -hmm. I had an absolute blast. And I have to say, I wasn't expecting it because uh, Heat is based on a previous design called Flamme Rouge, uh, which was also a racing game in that one you raced, you know, in the Peloton or whatever with bicycles, <laughs> right? And it was uh, a simple card system that emulated push your luck mechanisms and like uh, sort of a mini deck building situation happening where uh, you had speed cards that you played to get your bikes faster or slowed them down to turn around corners or there were also two bikes that you were trying to mm. move simultaneously. It was fine. It felt very mechanical to me. It felt so mechanical that I, I, I felt like I was playing a Reiner Knizia game uh, without any of the Knizia juge, right? Uh, mm. And I, a lot of people really, really like Flamme Rouge. And I respect that. And I wished I could see what those people saw. Mm. And I played Heat and I saw what those people saw, right? I I just had such a terrific blast. And it felt like all these mechanisms finally came together and made it sing. So Heat is basically a racing game. This time you're racing with these old-timey like race cards, you know, the ones that look like they're going to fall apart at any moment and they look like... They're made out of metal, but feel like they're made out of paper because mm -hmm. anything that slices through them will slice through everything uh, and they're going to 
you know, collapse in the middle of the track, set on fire, that kind of thing, yeah. right? Uh, and I'm not surprised that the title is Heat because just the artwork alone puts you so much into this world already. Uh, what a fantastic job on the cover. It it just radiates relentless speed and, you know, that excitement of racing. And I think what was the most magical thing about it for me is that I, I don't enjoy racing at all. I, I, I don't drive. I, I don't get like this desire for going fast or whatever. Uh, I don't watch Formula One. I have tried. I have really, really tried, right? But I enjoy um, films about racing mm-hmm. because what I don't understand is racing, right? But what films about racing do, right, is like they they explain those moments of tension. They They make it cinematic and they make it... Uh, they make me, they cut the corners of of my lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. They fill those bits in and they go, this is exactly why it's exciting. And I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. And so I really enjoy those films. Actually. So it's like watching the highlights of a Formula One. Well, it, no, but it's not just like watching the highlights. It's more like you're you're in the seat and you're feeling what the driver is oh, it's feeling. It's like, like being at the arcade and yes, playing the, exactly, <laughs> the driving right? game. And I felt playing Heat like I was watching a really cool film about racing, you know? And I I felt those moments. I felt that tension. I felt like these, you know, breakneck decisions of like, do I slow down? Do I go faster? Dare I cut this corner at a higher speed, right? And it was, I don't know. I, there was something quite magical about it. But you it. didn't feel when you played Flamme Rouge? No, I didn't. I just genuinely did not get that feeling. I mean, there's there's no worry that your bike's going to set on fire. I guess. That <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, maybe this thematically the stakes are lower in Flamme Rouge, right? Yeah, maybe. There's uh, absolutely nothing wrong with this car except that it's on fire. Yeah, that, that's a quote from Murray Walker, I think. Um, yeah, I really like this game. I don't know what pedal to the metal means. I meant to look that up. Why is it called pedal to well, the metal? Well, because you what? push the pedal all the way down. It but, touches but what, the metal. But what metal? Like the in, the in floor car, of the car. In my car, my Elaine, the floor is carpet. Elaine, can I just... I don't know if you noticed, mm-hmm. but we're not racing with Fiat's here. <laughs> I don't have a Fiat, I have a Skoda. Right, okay. So, uh, you used to have a Fiat. I did used to have a Fiat, yeah, yeah. I hate that car. There we go. I think that explains it. These are different cars, oh, Elaine. See. Okay, fair yeah. So that's that's why it's called Pedal to the Metal. I think I so, okay. yeah, because you push it all the way down. Uh-huh. Can I tell people how this game Please works? Do. Effectively, what you have in this game is a little dinky car, a little dinky toy car that you're going to try and race all around a racetrack, right? But you're not racing alone. You're racing with other people and they want to be first. And so do you. How are you going to do that? You're going to play some cards. How many cards can you play? Well, what gear are you in, right? So this little gear stick. <laughs> it's adorable. There's this little gear stick that you move along, right? And you can move it one space up or one space down. and Just the, like in real life. Just like in real life. Uh, and how many gears are in a car? Four, just like in real life. No. Let's gloss over but that. But again, racing car, I don't know. Might be different. They have a completely different like, yeah. gearbox anyway in a racing car. So. So, so you can move it one up or one down, and, and that's cool. Uh, but what gear you are in determines how many cards you get to play. Mm. And each card moves you along further. So you want to play more cards, or right? Or do you? Or do you? That's, well, <laughs> y- y- we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So 
you want to push you want to push that you know gearbox further have it on four right mm -hmm. and you could push it for example two spaces if you wanted it but and here's the catch right you have to put a heat card from your engine, which is like a separate space where heat cards are held, into your discard pile. Because you're crunching up your gearbox. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so uh, what does that heat card do? Well, it eventually will go from the discard pile to your deck, and then you'll draw it. And when you draw it, the card does nothing. And unlike other cards, which you can discard, you cannot discard this one. You, you have to hold it in, in your hand until you figure out a way how to get rid of it. How do you get rid of it? You turn your gearbox all the way back to two or to one, where you get to get rid of heat cards if you have them in your hand. So you already have this sort of mechanism where you're like, you want to speed up and you want to slow down, but also the racetrack is designed in such a way where you want to speed up or slow down. You have long stretches of just straight road. Doesn't matter, you can just blast yeah. ahead. Yeah, right? Go like 15 spaces, no consequences, everything is fine, right? However, there are these tighter, tighter, and getting even tighter corners where you just have to slow down because if you go through a race corner too fast, you're gonna have to put heat cards from your engine in the discard pile. And- If you can't, if you can't, we'll get to that in a second. If you can't, very bad things will happen. So what you're doing is you're constantly managing your heat, mm -hmm. basically. And I think that's why the game's called Heat, hey. right? Uh, because you want to time it so that, like, you spend heat when you're in these long stretches. Because, again, you can increase your gear speed, right? Increase your gear speed. That's, that's mm -hmm. car words, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can increase your gear speed and uh, go faster, but that costs heat. Or like when you're slowing down, you want that gear to go down, so you're expending it. But there's other ways to spend heat. For example, how do you how do you actually move yourself? Right. Well, there's like this phase where one by one, all the cars are gonna move, starting with the first one ahead on the track, and then down, 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 down. And then when you move. Uh, you just reveal the cards that you all simultaneously played and whatever numbers it says on them, uh, there's, you know, that's, that's how you're going to, that's how far you're going to go. And then the game says, oh, but you could go further. If you just spend one heat card, again, from your engine in the discard pile, you get to flip the top card of your deck. It might be really good. might be a four, might be a one. You don't know, but you're going to go further. And then... If you're just behind or next to another car, you can slipstream and then you can move even a little bit further if you want to. Is that good? Who knows? Maybe. Um, and, and you get into these really weird tight situations where you really want to push your luck because it's like, oh, if I only moved like, like exactly two more spaces or maybe one space, I could just slipstream a little bit. And then, you know, I wouldn't get past that corner. So I wouldn't get the penalty. I'm just, I'm going to risk it. I'm going to flip the top. Oh, it's a four. Oh no, I moved 12 spaces <laughs> and the allowance for this corner is free. So I have to put seven heat cards uh, from my engine in the discard pile. But wait a minute, we only start with six heat cards. So, um, I, I like to maths on that. I, I guess we spin out. You've taken that corner too fast. My driving instructor would be very upset with you. 
Well, uh, just as well, I don't know your driving instructor because I don't know where I was going that, but the bottom line of it is that I don't drive and I don't know how to. I do drive, but I've never driven a racing car, nor do I really have any want Uh, to drive a racing car. I think, I hope what I'm getting across from this is that there is just so many moments of tension. Uh, And for me, one one of the moments in the game... Uh, was like about two thirds through the race where I realized that I I am mostly just drawing cards and responding to cards and like, oh, this is what mm-hmm. I drew and this is where I am. So I have to play this to get that many spaces. And I thought, is that all there is? But actually, uh, as the game developed, I noticed that it, the only thing that was lacking was my imagination, mm-hmm. right? Because there are so many like levers that you can sort of manipulate and navigate and be clever about it. And I think that's what separated it for me from Flamme Rouge, where I could see the strategies more. And maybe those strategies are in Flamme Rouge. I don't know. I just never, I never got to see them in that Mm. game. I haven't played it that much, to be fair. Uh, But here I was like, oh, but if I do actually do something stupid here, like go too fast on that corner, right? I might just be able to get ahead of this person And actually that changes everything Mm. because whilst a lot of heat might be, you know, everyone going like 15 spaces or whatever, it's actually a game that's very much in the margins because you notice that the things that won or lost you the game are like this little one move here or there that you could have done a little differently or, you know, your luck just didn't pan out and you drew a card that's like one value too high and that completely changed your game right and there are times when you think well i, I either i creep round this corner and, mm-hmm. and don't have to burn any heat or i can just go a little bit over get past that corner and not have to worry about it anymore and i've got enough heat cards that i can just discard some of them and get around this corner and there we go I've, i'm on a straight now yeah so i can play whatever i want but then half a race later you realize that you burned through three, yeah, the three too much heat and you're now true. just not that's true. Able to push that speed, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of decision, little decisions to make on every corner and every straight. And sometimes you just draw a bit of a naff hand because you've used all your cards on the wrong bit. And they can feel quite slight in the moment. They mm-hmm. can feel like, I, I don't even know what this does. And as you play through the game more and more, you start to understand how your decisions affected your race as a whole and, and where you might have made a mistake or, you know, made a wrong decision. And whilst a lot of it is quite luck-based, there's a lot of card drawing, there's a lot of, like, push your luck and stuff. But but I think that sort of fits into the race where you can, you can only sort of see behind with that hindsight and go, well, now that I see the whole picture, I sort of understand what mm. went wrong. Uh, curiously, this is a game neither of us have won, even though no. we, even I came though third and you came second. second. My best was second, uh, even though we only ever played it as a two-player game. Mm. And that's another thing where I found it an improvement over Flamme Rouge. So uh, Heat is probably a game that's best with like five or six, with yeah. more people. You want a lot of race cars. You want a lot of like slipstreaming and manipulating and, you know, like things maybe even blocking you sometimes or not blocking you. And... There is a bot variant, and I know that a lot of people are probably going to go, oh, no, I don't want to do the bot because the bot sounds annoying, and I'm one of those people. I hate manipulating automated opponents in a game, 
But in here, it just works because it's just a deck of cards and it controls with one card, all the bots, just flip a card, see how far they go. And it tells you how far it's they go. It's easy to do. Yeah, and, it's And it gives very you more decision-making because you're like, am I going to be, if I'm nearly last, I can maybe slipstream and I get these extra things that I can do. Mm. Uh, or am I going to end up being first and passing all these other cars? It's, it's quite exciting because it's, it's actually like five cars on a track. Yeah. If it was just the two cars, you'd be poodling along together and there wouldn't be much tension. But you know mm-hmm. that there are these other cars that are going to catch you up, overtake you, whatever. Uh, and the stakes become a lot higher. Yeah, and as you can see, the bots are tuned well because we haven't won a game yet. No. Uh, <laughs> having said that, uh, the production is also quite stellar. Uh, there are four racetracks that come with the game. So they you, look great. Yeah, they, they look, look great. Really Again, great. the artwork. I can't. I cannot overemphasize just how great Heat looks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, there's just so much stuff in that box. Like you get the box. And, and all the stuff comes with the box. There's a weather module, a roads conditions module, the solo bot module. Then there's the garage module, which is where, like, you don't start with the regular upgrades, but, like, you get to sort of draft upgrades. There's a championship module where you... We're doing this, Elaine, at some point. We're yeah. going to have to do, oh, like, yeah. a podcast segment <laughs> where we report on our championship heat race <laughs> and who won in the end and whether it was any of us. <laughs> and I think that's quite unusual not to have a championship race, but to yeah. have everything all together in the same box. You open it and you can play all these different things. Yeah. And and I really like that. I also liked about the box that it all has little segments for each little thing. So each car has its own section in the mm-hmm. box to put mm-hmm. it back in. It's easy to pack up. It's easy to get out. Yeah, everything's segmented in that. a way that makes it easy to take out and go, this is this thing, we need this or that. And it's just really nice. The one place where the production falls down is just one of the worst rule books. I, 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 I Okay, I'm very conscious of saying one of the worst rule books because I say that so much. <laughs> right? But let it not be indicative of me. Let it be indicative of the quality of rule books we've had lately. Mm. Um, People just don't pay enough attention. And I think in this case, my complaint is warranted because apparently, I don't know if this is true, but the scuttlebutt on BGG is that they are making a new rule book. Oh, well, that's good. I mean, that is good. But imagine being in a position where it's like, oh, we have to rewrite this, right? Because I have struggled so much. I read the rule book. I read the rule book again. I watched Rodney Smith's video. Thank you, Rodney. I read the rule book again. uh, And there's not a big rule book, right? Uh, And then I went on BGGs and FAQs and all of that. And I read it. And once we played it, I had to stand up and go to BGG again because I still didn't quite understand. And and this isn't a complicated game, right? But the way it was written just left so much unclear. And also the same symbol, meaning two different things. And uh, because in one part, it's part of the thing and in another, it's not. It's just so confusing and so annoying, frankly, that I would probably, rather than trying to hunt down heat, because I think it's quite sold out right now, uh-huh. I would wait until... The they, new rulebook printing. Yeah, they print out the new rulebook because you're going to have so much an easier time learning from that. Uh, it's really, really just about the only thing that makes me not immediately jump to recommending heat. But otherwise... I thought you were going to say the uh, cars that don't have spinny wheels... Oh yeah, yeah, the little cars, uh, you did complain about this, you <laughs> did complain about little car models 
which, by the way, I think are really adorable. Uh, they don't have spinny wheels. Yes, Elaine, that is that is a criticism we could bring up, <laughs> should we choose to. But that's the only one I've really got because I didn't have to read the rule book. So I didn't, I wasn't part of any of that. So mm -hmm. I just went into the game like, yeah, come on, teach me this game. And I had a brilliant time with you and I'm looking forward to playing the championship. Did you, did you get that feeling of like, I am in a race, this, things are speeding by. Did you get that? Did you feel inside a race car as you were playing? No, I felt like I was sitting in our living room playing a board game, Efka. Where's your imagination? But I felt more like I was maybe, you know, sitting in an arcade doing it. I didn't feel right, like I... Yeah. Because when I'm in my car, yeah. I have terror anyway of people <laughs> jumping out, you know, the lights yeah. going red unexpectedly, like had someone pulling out in front of me or whatever. Yeah. I didn't have any of that. I was okay. quite comfortable w would with what you, I was doing. Would you say it had the exciting parts of driving a car without any of the danger? Oh, yeah, but I drive like a granny, so, you know, no, no, I don't know, really. I, I tell you what, it, yes, if I, I think if I'd have ever been in a racing car, uh -huh. I might have been like, oh, yeah, this, this is exactly like it was, but I haven't, so I don't know. But I enjoyed it very much, and it, as a simulation, mm. it was really nice. It was nice to be competing against you. It was nice to be competing against the bots. It never felt um, like that it was a done deal, like yeah. because there was cars that were well behind me, and then suddenly they were in front of me, and then I was behind them, and suddenly I was in front of them, and it was just a good decision-making experience where you couldn't slack off and be like, oh, well, I could just play these cards, whatever, whatever. Every time it was my turn, I was looking at my hand going, what is my best move here? Yeah. And I, I what I really like as well is that like when you're in the, like, like say when you're in the straight and narrow, mm -hmm. right, uh, you don't feel like the tension go away, even though like the answer is simple. I have to like put all my best cards and race as far as I can, right? But actually, you, you're making a lot of decisions that affect your future because, well, if I'm putting all the fast cards now, what am I going to do around the bend? Do, do I need maybe some of the fast mm -hmm. cards? Maybe I sacrifice a little bit of heat to just, mm -hmm. you know, just cross the bend so I can maintain momentum. Or uh, do how far can I put this gear stick up, right? There is this constant churn of tension and tension and tension and tension and tension. The only other real complaint I have that's not about the production and actually about the game design is that there's like nine steps mm -hmm. in, in any time you race. And the first two are done simultaneously, but the others are... And because the steps are so slight, you, you just barely do a thing, right? Mm -hmm. It often feels like you can sometimes lose track and, and forget which step you are in. And, and it sort of breaks that immersion a little bit where it's just like, okay, no, I have to sit down and account step three, then step four, step five. Because if you don't do that, you will miss something. Yeah. And that's something, again, because the game is so slow and so in the margins can be quite important. But I don't know if that was an us problem because like it is explained on your player board. There are icons on your player mm -hmm. board for each step. It's mm. not a secret. You don't have to try and remember it all. It's just that we were so excited about, no, come on, let's let's race, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We kind of forgot the upkeep bits of it. But I think that was all it was, that we were just so keen to see how far we could get our car to go and be competitive with each other and with the bots that we just 
skipped over that bit occasionally accidentally. You said that we were quite late to the buffet on this game and that is true but we've had quite a bit of love for this game and also a few comments. Jeep says, I think the decision space is actually quite wide. There's so many opportunities to take heat and asking questions like, can I afford to take four heat to get a corner ahead? And can I get away with playing a stress card here? Or could slough this one to save my four and slipstream around this corner? Our group benefited from several consecutive plays and the meta that naturally emerged, followed by a natural response to the meta, I felt was unique, satisfying, and usually impossible to achieve at a game this accessible. Well, I don't really have anything to add to that. I think that's it's pretty much on the money. Sums it up well. Yeah, yeah, it sums it up well. Uh, I'm not a big meta person, you know, I, but I guess things did evolve as as we were playing, and we're like, we should do this here, or we should. We should play it like that when a situation like that comes up. Like, but but it feels like it's also so malleable that mm. you don't you don't necessarily have to fall into a single meta. You you can you can navigate this racetrack however mm. you want. And Brock says he is fantastic, a fantastic continuation of the Flam Rouge formula, but different enough to be its own thing. They also wanted to comment on Canvas, saying it was maybe one of the prettiest games they've played. Again, I didn't really play Flamme Rouge enough to to be able to comment on the differences of it and this. For some reason, for whatever reason it was, Flamme Rouge just didn't quite gel with me the way this did. I, I felt a lot more when I was playing it. Like, I was just playing the cards that I had and mm. I, I, I was certain that there was a strategy to it that I just wasn't feeling that I've really felt in heat. Just a reminder, if you have any comments, questions or anything else, you can get in touch by emailing us, elaine at nopunincluded.com or if you're a patron via our Discord server. Coming up is Turncoats, Votes for Women and some more of what you've been saying. But right now we have the first previously recorded interview of Talk Cardboard, this time with the wonderful Jesse Gender. Delighted to welcome to the show Jesse Earl, also known as Jesse Gender. Jesse is a YouTube presenter who frequently discusses sci-fi, pop culture, and is known for her essays on social and trans issues. Today, however, we won't focus on those because instead we're talking about all the board games that Jesse likes. Jesse, yeah. how are you doing? I am doing I am doing great. We were talking right before we started recording uh, that this week has been like an ups and downs for me. And I'll, I, will, I can mention later on, but uh, what's talking about board games. But right now I am doing really great and it's been a wild emotional week. So I'm excited to just chat about like cool board game stuff. I've been watching your videos as I normally do. And and suddenly there was there was at one point like a change in background you know the scenery sort of wasn't your standard background it was more like you know your shelves and stuff like that and there were board games there and i'm like jesse plays board games i uh, we have to have her on the show and and just talk about you know all the board games that you like and uh and maybe some that you don't who knows 
Um, was I despise? No, it, it's <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because like quite literally it wasn't just you. I forget what that video was. I did a few where I was just like because I've done very presentary videos, mm-hmm. but I've done a few lately where I've just been like wandering around my house as I talk just for fun, just to change it up a little bit. Um, and I think I forget what that one was. I know one was the one that got big for like J.K. Rowling nonsense, which is its own discussion. Um, but uh, but like that one, I forget what it was, but like everyone in the comments was just like not even commenting on the topic of the video. But was just like, oh, I see the board games. I see the board games. Just he has board games. So it's just really funny that like like that was. Half of the takeaway was whatever I was talking about in that video, and the other half was like, Jesse likes board games. And I'm like, I love it. I love that that's like the background uh, level of people watching the videos. I, that's like, I'd rather that be the conversation about my videos, to be honest. I think there's some appeal in in just seeing a board game. Do you, do you get that? Do you get like, you see a cover and go, oh, that's just that cover alone. That that excites me. Yeah, no, I, I, I honestly, I, there's a few board game stories that I uh, have here in Seattle and I honestly just like going in and like seeing what they, what they have there. Cause it's just always interesting to me to see like what world you get to kind of enter in a board game. I don't know. There's something like enjoyable about seeing what kind of like world you could go into kind of like a video game, but it's also much more tactile. Mm-hmm. And and I enjoy this like the idea of like you set it up, you put it in your space, and just getting to see like what cool ideas are there. Um, what was uh, so okay? So uh, here's here's younger Jesse encountering mm-hmm. her first board game ever. Uh, oh God, what was that? And 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 I don't mean like you know Monopoly. Yeah, uh, yeah, with your yeah. parents, but like you know a modern board game. What was that one that well, like? Oh, this is something else. I am trying to think because for me, a lot of it was like board games with my parents. Um, there was a couple, like my parents tried to be a little bit strange with a couple of the choices, but it was a lot of like the game of life and Monopoly and, and those random ones. I actually don't even think it was until... Actually, no, Uh technically it wasn't a board game, but the first time I got into like tabletop stuff was I worked at a Boy Scout camp. Um, for, ironically enough, considering who I am, uh, and, uh, I worked there for several summers and every summer we would do like Dungeons and Dragons. And we'd, mm. it was funny cause we'd start the same campaign over and over and over again. Cause it was every summer was like, well, we're going to do this campaign. We're going to beat it this time over the summer. And so we'd start it fresh, get like a little ways into it and then be like, all right, well, the summer's over now. We didn't have as much time as we thought. We'll start it up again next summer and then do the same campaign again over and over and over again. Um, but it wasn't until I think officially college where I had a regular group of friends who were like big nerds like me and we got super, super into board games together. So we, I think like the one that we played regularly and it's still my favorite one was the the Game of Thrones board game. We mm. got super into that and would play that literally every single weekend. So I think like if we're talking like outside the box, no pun intended, board games, I think I think the Game of Thrones board game is probably the first one that has like a measurable impact on me. Oh, actually, I lied to you. I just, you just reminded me actually what I just remembered because I'm like trying to think there has to be before then. I remember what it was actually. Battlestar Galactica, the board game. It's all like tied to media franchises uh-huh, for me, uh-huh. I guess. The Battlestar Galactica board game, I literally am just remembering this now because um, I own it. And the reason I own it is uh, I had at my high school, we had an overnighter. 
uh, mm. where it's like you stay in the school for a night. Uh, and one of my teacher's uh, husbands, he brought a board game to play, and it was the Battlestar Galactica board game, and he was super excited about it, and I had never played a board game like that. I'm just remembering. I completely forgot this. Um, and I fell in love with that game because it was like it was the like social deduction stuff that's in the yeah, Battlestar yeah. Galactica board game. And uh, it was me and then a friend of mine who played it with him. And it was just the three of us because we were, like, the only nerdy people because everyone else was, like, really cool, like, doing other cool <laughs> stuff during the all-nighter. And we were just playing this one board game. I think that is the first time that I played, like, a board game board game beyond, like, the regular Monopolies and, uh, like, Game of Life. And then I remember buying that Battlestar Galactic game in college, which is why I got, mm -hmm. like, the thread reminded me, because I remember playing the board games with my friends, like, Game of Thrones board game, and was like, I remember the Battlestar Galactic game and loved it, bought that for college friends, and and uh, played it with them. So, yeah, that's, yeah, I just, I completely forgot that that was a thing, but I, I do remember that very vividly. Did it ever get mean? Because social deduction games can get mean. Did it ever get really mean? Uh, no, it never did. The Battlestar Galactica game got, or sorry, not the Battlestar, the Game of Thrones board game got cutthroat at times. Because <laughs> that, one, that one gets cutthroat. But actually, weirdly, my I actually love social deduction games. I play them. In fact, they're probably my favorite kind of board games. I don't know if they even count as board games in the strictest sense, like hmm. things like um, Resistance. Mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. uh secret hitler um like i love those games so much um which is uh, on its face i've actually thought about this a lot because uh, when you asked me to go on i thought i was like i'm gonna have to mention social deduction games and why i love them and i've been thinking about it a bunch because um you wouldn't necessarily think that i would like social deduction games because i have a lot of social anxiety uh -huh. And also, I'm on the, uh, I've been open about this, I'm on the autism spectrum. So it's, like, hard for me sometimes to, like, read social cues. This is why, partially, I have so much social anxiety. So I've, I've been, like, weirdly trying to self-analyze about, like, why do I love social deduction games so much? Um, like, not even that, like, uh, the Thing board game is also a really good yeah. one for that, too, I think is, is really fun. And it's been interesting for me because it's just sort of, like, uh, I like it when I don't get to be the person hiding anything, like I'm not like mm -hmm. the, you know, I'm not Hitler or a fascist in Secret Hitler or like one of the enemy in, in Resistance or whatever. Um, and I have to like figure out who the bad people are because a lot of my anxiety is based around I don't know how to read people, so I overanalyze people's reactions a bunch, which is anxiety-inducing in real life because mm -hmm. I'm always like, do they hate me? Did I say something stupid? But then when it's in a game setting... And I can actually, like, my that skill of, like, I overanalyze everyone's reaction then becomes part of the game. And there's, like, a weird, like, uh, relaxing of, like, oh, I, it's okay for me to be worried about people because that's the game, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's, it's just, it was an interesting sort of realization. Um, so you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Game of Thrones, you mentioned Battlestar mm -hmm. Galactica. Uh, I, when, when you choose, like... When, when a board game captures your imagination, you're like, oh, I'd love to play this. Is it more the setting or is it more the mechanisms? Or is it like sometimes a bit of both? 
It's usually sometimes a little bit of both. I mean, a lot of what got me into board games, I mean, as I just told you, was was through like, oh, these are things that uh, that I know. And that was sort of the in for me. So like in college, the big thing was the Game of Thrones board game. It was back when we were all playing Game of Thrones. Um, but my friends and I, I, I still adore that game. So like for that one, it was the setting. Mm-hmm. But I adore that game quite a lot because I love that it's a mix of strategy while also being kind of a like a stab each other in the back not not necessarily a social deduction game but a little bit of that where you have to like if for those of you who don't know the way that that game is played is everyone makes their own makes their moves at the same time and you're trying to capture castles and stuff um but then you do things like there are things mechanisms in the game that like let you bid on turn order or who has slightly more power in battles or whatever um and, and there's also moments where everyone has to work together, too. So it's like this weird combination of, like, you have to hide things from people. You have to make alliances with people. Uh, and, uh, like, the, the, the like way the game is played changes from moment to moment. And you have to, like, sort of, like, think, like, kind of five steps ahead to, to do that sort of stuff. But then there are also moments that are collaborative where everyone kind of has to work together. Um, and so I think for me initially, it's the setting. But then once you get into stuff like that, and once I started learning more about board games, I started to, I think the mechanics of stuff really, really got me. And games that I found that I like the most beyond social deduction games, which social deduction games I think are best for like teaching, like if you have a bunch of people who you want to play a game with, but you don't have a lot of time to get like in depth, like a good party game. Those are great for that, which is why I play a lot of them and I enjoy them. But when you have people that you sit down with, I think the games that I like the most are ones where there's a little ep- uh, element of cooperation. There's a little element of uh, a competitiveness, um, but it's and there's a lot of strategy. So um, Game of Thrones board game is like that. Uh, Betrayal at House on the Hill is one mm-hmm. that I really adore for that exact reason because everyone works together and there's betrayal and strategy from there. Um uh Catan is also a good one though that's sort of kind of become more into like the normie board game land at this point um the normal people play Catan uh but I have Star Trek Catan so that makes it better uh <laughs> that does make it better genuinely right yeah, yeah yeah it's great um so yeah I think I think at this point where I'm at now in my life is uh with in relation to board games is I think mechanics sells me more but I think initially it was it was drawing me in through the the setting, and also setting can get me too. Still, like I I just bought the Bloodborne board game, which uh, I became a huge Dark Souls from soft uh, freak this this past year. Fell in love as with, everyone uh, in the world. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, see, funny enough, I got into it right before Elden Ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, because I, I saw I can still be cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did it before it was cool, everybody, I swear. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I still haven't even played Elden Ring, um, strangely enough. Uh, but I got into all the other FromSoft stuff this year. And so, like, Bloodborne got me. I haven't played it yet. I literally bought it and it's sitting on a shelf. Um, but so, still get into it by, like, setting of things that I enjoy. But, mm-hmm. uh, but overall, I think mechanics sell me now. You mentioned uh, party games and that mm-hmm. you. Uh, you play a lot of party games now. Uh, do you feel like that's like uh, an accessible way to introduce your like non-board gaming friends in into what you do? That's a weird yeah. way to say it. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. I, I think it very much is. In fact, I've done that a few times over the past year, actually, because, um, you know, I moved to Seattle recently. Uh, and I've been making like within the past two or three years or so and during the pandemic. So it's kind of a little bit difficult to like hang out with people initially. 
Um, and so over the past like year and change, I've been hanging out more and more with friends, making more and more friends in Seattle. Uh, and because of that, I had started having people over, they're all nerds, but they're not like board game nerds. So I'd be like, oh, let's play, let's play a social deduction game. Let's play Secret Hitler or, um, Resistance or something like that. Um, you know, there's also the other ones like Cards Against Humanity and things like that. Um, another good one is Super Fight. I found it was always a fun one because it gets people arguing about stuff. Um... So uh, I think those are good, like, ins for people. And then I've invited those same people as, like, all right, you played that. Now let's play, you know, a little bit, something a little bit bigger, like uh, Mysterium. Mm. Is a, I think, a, like, a good, like, middle step board game where it's, like, fairly easy to understand and set up. Everyone's kind of working on the same team so everyone doesn't feel like they're going to lose or whatever. Um, and then uh, from there, then I got them into, I was like, let's do... Uh, Let's do the Game of Thrones board game because I just needed people to play with, which I I learned at that moment might have been a little step too far. I think everyone got into it by the end, but the, when I introduced it, it was like, here, we're going to explain this, and it takes like 30 minutes to explain the rules. I think they were a little taken aback, but it's like, I gotta, I got gotta, you got to jump in the pond at some point, yeah. you know, got to jump yeah. in the lake at some point. So uh, maybe, a, maybe a little bit uh, of a in between Mysterium and the Game of Thrones board game was uh, there's an interim step there, but uh, but I do think there was like a progression with uh, with my friends, bringing them from from uh, social deduction all the way through to to those sort of games. And now we we don't play like regularly, regularly, but we do play fairly regularly, um, which is which is fun. So I'm I'm really big on on getting into the grips with uh, sometimes what the game is trying, you know, emulate or simulate or, you know, what mm -hmm. environment it's trying to put you in. And, and Terraforming Mars for me has always been, you know, gameplay aside, and I'm really not talking about like the mechanism, whether it's good or bad or whatever, right? You know, uh, it, it's putting you in, in just sort of the worst entity possible, which is like mm -hmm. a corporation, right, on Mars. So colonialism but also you know corpo as heck and and then i can't reconcile sometimes and and i know this is wrong but i sometimes can't reconcile is it like how do i feel about this and why does it feel good why does this mm. like expansive colonialism feel good do you get that sometimes from games Oh, yeah. No, I mean, like, I, I think that's a really great one to talk about that with, because, like, if you want to get political on here, I think that that's what, like, interesting games like that do, which, like, put you in that space to make you think about why it feels good in that way. Because, like, capitalism, in a lot of ways, it makes you think about, like, human life and human um, existence as like a game to be played. Like, oh, we're all playing. We're all playing the game of capitalism, but it's like you're playing with people's ability to feed themselves, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so a game like that, I think like shows you how that, like that, that gamification of like literally looking for oxygen kind of goes that far and how it can be played that way. Um, and I think that that like games like that have a great element of that sort of like core political uh, feeling to them that I think it's like, people just think of like games as games but like games can be political because it's like putting you in a mindset that you wouldn't necessarily think about before it's like everyone's just like oh i just want to like don't keep politics out of my video games keep politics out of my board games like no it's it's everything is saying something you know very very few games are i don't think anything doesn't have like something to say and if it doesn't then it's not really interesting to me I, like you can even go to like i mean look at things like secret hitler 
very clearly the very clearly on the package that is a very political game like liberals versus fascists um resistance which is another social deduction game um is also like about like it's a cyberpunk world which itself is a very anti-corporate uh sort of thing um you know you know it doesn't have to be the deepest political critique of all time but there always is something there but i think something as deep as terraforming mars really gets gets into that in a way that like you know, if you watch a TV show about like, I think there was an old Sean Connery movie that was similar to that, where it's like he's a he was a sheriff on a colony where they were like selling oxygen and stuff. So you could watch that, and it's an interesting critique, but you don't get to be put into that mindset of having to do that um, in a way that I think Terraforming Mars allows you to do in a really intriguing way. Um, and I think that that it's it's like, oh yeah, this is bad, but it feels good. And then you understand how like CEO people can can fall into that like thinking of like even people who like think like I'm a good person, but I'm just playing the game that's in front of me, you know, without like being self-aware. Jesse, that was really, 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 <laughs> really good. I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, before we wrap up, can you tell people uh, what you're up to, what exciting mm-hmm. things are happening in Jesse Gender's world and uh, what is there to look forward to? Yeah, uh, so you, uh, we were talking before I came on, uh, before you officially started recording, but um, I, uh, you caught me at a really interesting moment because, um, as many people know, I have my YouTube channel where I do video essay type of things, and um, the rest of my year, this the beginning of this year and a lot of last year was focused on really negative stuff. Uh, Obviously, a lot of uh, stuff is going on when it comes to trans people right now, which is uh, something I try to advocate for, trans issues and LGBTQ issues and stuff. And I still want to keep doing that. Uh, But a lot of my content has been focused on, like, crappy people doing crappy things. And that's still a fight that needs to be fought. It's not definitely not gone away and, in fact, gotten worse in a lot of senses. But what I want to try and focus on and something that I've been thinking more and more about lately is creating the conversation for ourselves that to not be constantly reactive um to stuff but try to be uh proactive and say like this is this is what we should be fighting for this is what we should be thinking about in a way that is hopeful and caring constructive because i'm a huge star trek fan i'm a huge star trek nerd so i always like thinking about like the hopeful future that we're fighting for so for me the content that i have coming forward this coming year is content that i'm hopefully hoping is going to be you know, in that vein of like hopeful, fun, nerdy, but also still being like, you know, have some political stuff to it. So like, um, uh, you know, if you're excited for stuff on my channel coming in the next few months, I'm doing big videos. Like I have one coming in, I think May that I'm filming now. That's going to be big produced. I'm working with museum pop culture to like film some of the stuff in it, uh, here in Seattle. Uh, That's going to be about star Wars and the politics of star Wars. And oops, it's about, uh, it's about fascism and the rise of fascism and, and, and things like that. So it'll be fun videos that have some, some oomph to them, I think. And it'll be an interesting things, but so subscribe to my channel if you want that stuff. But beyond that, uh, this is actually technically, this is the first place I'm going to announce that, but this podcast is going to go up after the official announcement later next week. Um, but, uh, for those of you who don't know, I am on Nebula, which is a streaming service, uh, for like YouTube creators. Uh, they, they host content creators that allows us to do stuff outside of the YouTube algorithm. And I was very, very lucky that, uh, I was working on a short film, uh, that I was producing that I wrote and am planning to direct. 
Uh, it is a transgender-focused science fiction short film, and it's going to be produced by my wonderful friend, Dr. Erin McDonald, who, uh, if you're a Trekkie, you may recognize the name because she is the science advisor for the Star Trek franchise. Uh, she's actually appeared in Star Trek Prodigy as a character. Um, she is one of the coolest people that I've ever known. She's literally an astrophysicist. Um, she's also a writer, though, and she has her own film production company that is queer and women-focused. Um, and she's made a few short films already um, that are like she did uh, one called Every Morning, which is a time loop queer love story. And she was excited to work with me to on this project that I'm doing right now called Identities, um, which uh, basically think trans uh, meet think the Matrix meets Severance, but transgender um, explicitly so because Matrix is already transgender. Um, so that was the project we were going to kickstart it. Uh, and we were going to, like, spend the next month, like, promoting the Kickstarter, getting funds for it. Nebula heard about it, and they're like, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. We'll fund it. <laughs> so so Nebula, quite literally, just this week, uh, said that they are going to fund the whole short film. So it's definitely going to happen. Um, and I am very, very excited uh, to, to be doing that. So that is my next big project that will be... Um, made uh i, I want to say not specifically on youtube but it is because of youtube because the big thing that i always want it to be focused on is like this isn't like jesse's going away off of youtube to do her own professional work um i'm only able to do this stuff because of youtube and in the community that's there so uh yeah this is my next like big project that i'm focusing on that i'm super excited for and doing for you know the, the community that has enabled me to have this platform because at the end of the day to wrap this all out that's what that's what the work that I do is all about. It's about building community, um, about like creating ties between folks, um, and people have uh, been gracious enough to allow me to do stuff like this. And I hope I try to give back to them by making cool stuff that yeah, I hope inspires others. So that's the long answer to your question. <laughs> uh, that's a great answer. I can't wait to see more about this, and I can't wait to see the project when it materializes. Yeah. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great to be here and to talk about board games. I something I don't really get to talk often about. That was Jesse Earl slash Jesse Gender. And if you would like to hear the full interview, it's available to our patrons on patreon.com forward slash no pun included. I think I just wanted to say a few words about um what the plan is going forward with interviews on Talk Cardboard. So the reason we renamed the podcast to Talk Cardboard was because our big vision for it was always to include interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, but we wanted to maybe make it a little different from, let's say, other podcasts that do interviews, because I think a lot of our industry focuses uh, a lot on people who are in the inside of it rather than on the outside. So our aim is to sort of maybe invite guests that you don't normally get to hear from. And uh, that might be interesting people that you are familiar for other reasons with, like Jesse Gender, or it might be someone who's just interesting and they have something interesting uh, to share in terms of their perspectives uh, or what have you. So we're not going to have interviews every episode yet. We are working up to that. I think you can at least expect an interview at the every other episode on Talk Cardboard. And just by the by, wasn't Jessie great? She was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I really enjoyed hearing just this sort of unbridled enthusiasm 
about board games and and it made me feel like i don't know like back 10 years ago how i felt about <laughs> board games before before i was doing this reviewing lark you know uh and i don't know it, it really brought something back for me and I, i i think i'm really glad that we got jesse on as our first guest because um i've always known her to be incredibly positive in her outlook mm. Uh, I've, I've never met her before, uh, and it was nice to actually get to meet her. Uh, but I do watch her channel, and I thought, you know what? Who would be a great guest? Someone who's incredibly positive and passionate. I guess uh, that's the benefit of having people from outside the industry, too. Yeah, and I, I think that really came through in the interview. Next up, we have my favorite game by a Swedish dentist. It is Turncoats, which comes from publisher Milda Matilda Games by designer Matilda Simonson and artist David Masnato. So just a little bit about the name Milda Matilda, mm. because that really trips me up. Because, because her name is Matilda, yes. right? But, but the publishing company is Milda Matilda, mm -hmm. which... I know it's Swedish, but in Lithuanian, Milda. And I don't know if that's true in Sweden as well. If you're Swedish and you know this, please let us know. Is Milda a first name in Sweden? Because it is in Lithuania. So it's like two first names together. And I get that they're there because they rhyme, right? Or does Milda mean something else in Swedish? I need to know this. Please write in and let us know. I love it when someone has two first names instead of like a first name and a surname. Yeah. They have two surnames instead of a first name. I love that. I don't know what's happening here. I, I would love some more insight. But uh, let's talk about Turncoats, which is a little lovely abstract game that isn't just designed uh, by Milda Matilda Games. It's also handcrafted mm. by Milda Matilda Games uh, because the game comes in a pouch And the pouch unfolds, and all the components are inside it, but then the, the pouch becomes the playing board. Isn't that cool? Yeah, and you have little embroidery there to, to sort of um, have all the areas of the game. And when I say it's an abstract, it really is an abstract. Think chess-like in its appearance and also maybe even play, except it's nothing like chess, but... It's, it's not that, like the king is dead in play. Yes, exactly. We've covered the king is dead. And I think that the king is dead is a direct inspiration to turncoats because so much of it feels very similar because the general premise is that you have three different competing armies and they are sort of here just denoted by color. There's uh, black beads, blue beads, red beads, and... Uh, you are not playing as either of them. It is, in fact, a two-player game. But you are trying to manipulate the board state in such a way that when the game ends, uh, you have the most beads in your hand of the faction that is winning on the board. Meaning that um, and the faction that is winning uh, means it controls the most areas. How does it control the most areas? It has more beads in an area Uh, than other beads. <laughs> so let's say there are three uh, areas where uh, black beads have the most beads, two areas where red beads have the most beads, and one area where blue beads have the most beads. I look at my hand, do I have more black beads than the other player? If I do, I won. If I don't, I lost. That It's as simple as that. The word beads is starting to lose all meaning. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a slightly brain-bendy premise. Yeah. 
But once you get it, you get it. It's quite simple. You're, you're trying to manipulate the board state without expending too much resources. And, and that's the key thing here, because the board is seeded with random beads at the start. Mm -hmm. But also your hand is seeded with random beads at the start. You get eight beads. You don't know what you're going to get. You're going to get some beads. You might be some, you know, it might end up with like five black beads, uh, three blue ones and none red, right? So obviously red is not going to be the faction you're going to try and get on top. But the only way you manipulate the board state is by... Expending the beads. In expending the beads from your hand. And you only have eight. So that means at most you can make eight moves. And in fact, that's not true. I mean, you can make eight moves, but if you make eight moves, you will lose because you have none beads left in your hand at the end of the game. Therefore, you can't win. Mm -hmm. So there aren't many turns in turn codes and the turns aren't very long either. It's like a four or five turn game. Oh, it's a very quick game. Yeah. And then it's over. And when we played turn codes, we went, right, let's play again. Right, let's play again. Mm -hmm. Right, let's play again. And I think that's sort of the charm of it. It's this little pouch, you unfold it, you put some beads on, and then and then you spend about five, maybe ten minutes at most, mm -hmm. and, you know, the battle is over. And then you can play another battle if you like, see if it plays out very differently, or similarly. And actually, for the most part, they did play out quite differently. Mm -hmm. um, the number of things you can do is add a bead to the territory, or spend a bead to move all beads of one of the same color as you put down that's another trick you can only manipulate the beads that that correspond to the color of the bead that you spend from your hand right so if i want these black beads to move uh to an area where like i want them to win that area i have to spend the black bead from my hand and then suddenly i have less black beans in my hand I, i'm pretty sure i just said black beans <laughs> i think you did and and then i need to uh, maybe find a different faction that I'm fighting for. And and so it starts to get clever like that because even though you only have a few moves, like your strategy constantly shifts. Right, yeah, but that's, that's similar with uh, The King is Dead or something. You're constantly mm -hmm. thinking, okay, I don't have many moves in this game. How yeah. can I maximize, I guess, the turns that I do have. Did you and just say maximalize? Yeah. What, what do I maximize? Maximize. Yes. There we go. The turns that I do have. One of the things that you can do is negotiate um, where you take a stone from the bag and then you put one back that was in your hand. So you don't get a new stone. But, but you get a different color stone. Yeah. Well, hopefully, maybe. Yeah. Who knows? But the thing is, if both people do that, then the game is over. So there is a kind of... I guess push your luck a little bit with it. Like if I do this, it's better for me. But if the other player ends the game now, have I got what I want to win this game? Mm. And maybe you do, maybe you don't. What I do like about this game a lot is how compact it is. I'm, I'm always a big fan of a game that is small that you can take anywhere. Uh, that is a good game, right? And mm -hmm. I know that uh, Matilda, I saw an interview with her um, and that was kind of the idea of, of this game that you could just, the bag is the game, right? You just pick it up and mm -hmm. off you go and you can play it like on a LARP or, or wherever. Yeah. Uh, and the whole thing is just very easy to get out and easy to play and very quick. Mm. My only thing about taking it to places is that the bag is entirely white and, and the outside is white. 
Whatever. <laughs> uh, the outside is not white. I think you will find that the outside is green and brown. Um, sometimes grey because of the concrete. But, but yeah. Or red because of peat and clay and whatnot. Oh, I, that, that was a lot less dark than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, the outside is going to get dirty. I appreciate that. But the outside isn't what you're playing on. The inside is what you're playing on. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, mm-hmm. And hopefully you can find some kind of blanket or table. I don't know why we're going into this. Practicalities, they're important. Uh, I will say that in comparison to The King is Dead, if you already own The King is Dead, you do not need turncoats. I think turncoats... I really enjoyed it and I think it's a really good game. And as a condensation of these ideas, as a pure expression of, of this mechanism, it works really well, mm-hmm. right? But but there's just a little bit more on the bone when it comes to The King is Dead. There's just a little bit more where I can navigate in the strategies and sort of a tangibility to it that feels uh, more palpable. There's There's like... I don't know, I just feel like I can sense the game better, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree to some extent, but I think this game achieves something that can't be achieved with The King is Dead, where you you couldn't just pop out The King is Dead randomly anywhere. True. You can just take... It's, the bag is the size of, I don't know, a bag of peanuts, and you can just take it with you anywhere. And And that's what I really like about this. Oh yeah, it's very pure in what mm-hmm. it does. It is... It is precisely this concept of there's armies fighting, you want to back the right one. Mm-hmm. You don't want to win with the army, you want to back the right army. It's a simple concept, but I think it's well implemented. Yeah, in the, in, as a, like I said, as a distillation, it's, it's really, really good at what it does. But I already have The King is Dead, and I'm happy with that game. I don't see myself taking games... I think for me, it often feels like that sort of idea, I can take this game anywhere, is more aspirational than realistic, if that makes sense. Like, you can, it's it's the life I want to live uh-huh. rather than the life I actually will live. It's the coffee book idea mm-hmm. uh, of like, where, you know, you have the, the coffee table book. I, and, I know what coffee table right, is. Right, and, and I, okay, I don't need to explain that. No. Um, but I don't think it's wrong to have that aspiration. No, no, not at all. I, I think it's really nice and I like it. I just think that most people who already have The King is Dead, they're going to be fine with it. They don't need to hunt this out. Unless they really love The King is Dead and want an alternative. That's true. There, there is that. Uh, talking of hunting this out, um, this is not available via normal means. Mm. Uh, you have to go on the publisher's website and fill out a Google request form of desire uh, to attain this game. And when one is available, you will be emailed with with the possibility to purchase it. Because again, these are handcrafted. Uh, This is a small operation. We're going to put the link in the description of the show notes. I I don't know if they're at all available at the moment or not, uh, but this will be subject to change over time, basically. Um, so if you do want a copy, you can follow that show link and get yourself one. We have had this from John by email. In the same vein as Turncoats, what other abstract games that evoked a certain timelessness, whether actual or by design, would you recommend more gamers to try? For me, I think Shobu, Onitama and Martin Wallace's upcoming Bloodstones 
particularly work in that direction? That is an excellent question that I am absolutely the wrong person to answer because I am just not a big abstract game player. For me, I always go back to the classics. I, I still think backgammon is fantastic. And I think if you've not tried backgammon, you owe yourself a, a game of backgammon, at least one, just, just to feel what it is and how much depth there is in it. But I just, I, I was always a person that needed a bit more set dressing. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching that, uh, there's a really popular YouTube video where Irving Finkel plays a game of, the royal game of Ur mm -hmm. against Tom Scott. When I watched it, I really could see Finkel's enthusiasm for clearly what has been the passion of his life, you know, recreating these rules and how they think this game plays and uh, and and they're pretty sure that they've got it right. Yeah. And they're available online. They are available and they're beautiful sets. Mm. But at the same time, I was just like, I can sort of see it, but I, I really need a little bit more. And I know that there are a lot of games that are being designed lately that are sort of in that vein of abstract. But for me... A pure abstract is different from something like, say, Martin Wallace's Bloodstones mm -hmm. or Onitama, where there is already some set dressing. And actually, even Onitama, I found myself always just wanting a little bit more. Mm. And I think, I think it uh, falls down into the realm of into the realm of pure tactics a bit too much. Having said that, actually, sorry, I'm going to retract my answer. Uh, I'm going to say that. Uh, the wonderful thing that's happening with sort of the abstract side of gaming is uh, trick-taking games because I think they emerge, again, from the abstract. It's playing cards and you're following abstract rules. They don't necessarily mean anything, but, you know, it's, it's, it's purely about the mechanisms. But the world of trick-taking games is just exploding right now. There are so many new designs out there. Uh, and one of the things that changed is that instead of having that 52 card deck people realize that with you know production possibilities they can make custom decks with custom cards mm -hmm. and, and make trick taking something that's more exciting than it was before and more innovative than it was before and we're going to talk more about trick taking in the next podcast we're covering a trick taking game in that one um and even more on no pun included uh, our main youtube channel i really like an abstract game but I, I, I love Onitama uh, for a start, like especially something where you kind of think you half know the rules already because it's a bit like chess or it's a bit like something else. Mm. Uh, and then suddenly it's very different. Mm. And I, I really enjoy an abstract game. I do not need the set dressing like you mentioned, but I have not played nearly enough abstract games to have a favorite or to have favorites. We are sorely lacking in that department, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think, I think I need to change that. Yeah, we need to definitely rectify that. So we haven't got a great answer for you, John, but we, we are gonna try. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I think that's something nice to look forward to. But John also wants to say uh, thanks and keep up the excellent work. So thank you very much, John. Thank you very much. I love an abstract game. I love an abstract <laughs> game. Why don't I play more abstract games? 
It's a good point. Yeah. Before we go into votes for women, we've had a couple of people asking for a bit of advice. Both Tom and Oz would like to know about small games that they can play on the move, besides those that we have already covered, solo or otherwise. Oz also says that they're lamenting the loss of the Pocket Game series. Ah, uh, I am <laughs> lamenting the loss of the Pocket Game series. We started that and we realised we made a mistake because I think the problem with that was that we were doing individual videos for each game mm. and it just doesn't get seen enough by everyone. I think we're going to definitely cover more small games definitely on this podcast, but also in video form. But if it comes to a small game it's probably going to be part of a compilation video rather than anything else. But yes, we would like to revisit smaller games. And Turncoats is a perfect example of something you can play on the move. Uh, if you're looking for that kind of thing, I think that's great. Yeah, the Pocket series uh, kind of a little bit went nowhere for that reason, but also because it started out as kind of a gag. It was going to be a few actual Pocket games. And then the finale was going to be... Too many bones... It was a joke, but we never quite got there. No, uh, I abandoned that idea. That wasn't when the series was being developed. Then we sort of uh, we wrote out that idea, but I pitched it to Elena's. What if we do this, and then we end up reviewing Too Many Bones because Too Many Bones Undertow came like as as a smaller package that. I was going to saw the game in half or something like that. There, there was some gag in there, but we, we dropped the gag. It was serious when we were mm -hmm. doing it, but we got three episodes in and realized, oh, wait, this is killing our channel. Yes. Like, literally. Yeah, uh, so we had to stop that. that. Yeah. And with that, we're on to our final game. Fitting, as we're recording this on International Women's Day, it's Votes for Women, which comes to us as a review copy from publisher Fort Circle Games by designer Tori Brown and artists Bridgette Indelicato and Mark Rodrigue. I'm going to start by saying that Votes for Women is really not the sort of design that we have a lot of experience with. So it comes from the world of historical war games. Mm -hmm. I guess the suffragette movement is a kind of war, uh, as it were. Yes. So it definitely fa falls into that category, but also because it riffs on games like Twilight Struggle or 1960, The Making of a President. Uh, in fact, thematically quite close to that, because both of these games are about securing votes across the map of America. Uh, and, and that's sort of what you get, securing maps across the votes. No. <laughs> uh, securing votes across the map of America. How do you do that? By playing various cards that have various historical events, and those historical events affect the landscape, literally, by putting the cubes of the suffragette movement, or abstractly named opposition. Uh, there's a lot more hiding behind the word opposition. Normally, opposition is a good thing. You want to be the opposition. You want to be, you know, Maybe you don't want to be labor, but what you know, you you want to you want to be the rebels against the empire, right? Not that kind of opposition. <laughs> the opposition of the patriarchy, not against the patriarchy, of the patriarchy. Yes. Oh my word! The, just the feeling of playing this game is something that cannot be replicated by anything. I mm -hmm. think when we were going to play votes for women, mm -hmm. uh, we obviously had to pick a side, right? 
and the question that came up was, well, who's going to play the opposition, right? And I thought, you know what? Okay, I'm just I'm just gonna do it. You know, I'm just gonna bite the bullet, as it were, and just you know play the horrible side. Uh, and I I think there is there are two ways to approach how you play this. One is you take everything incredibly seriously. And the other one is where you don't. And I did not have the stones in me to take this seriously. <laughs> um, knowing you, I thought it would, it would sort of be okay. And I don't recommend doing this because you really need to know the person that you're playing this with. It would be okay to play this sardonically. And, and you were receptive to that because, because if I play, played it at face value, I think it would have broke me a little bit. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I had to, I, I had to be sardonic about it and play up the ridiculousness of this, these awful ideas that I am mm. playing out because, because the starting card. So, um, in, in votes for women, uh, you have a hand of seven cards uh, what you're trying to do is you're trying to, if you are the suffragists, you are trying to uh, sway 36 states? 36. Yeah, 36 states to vote for your movement. Whereas if you're playing as the opposition, all you need is 13 states. Mm. So it's very asymmetrical immediately. And uh, the way you do that is you have campaigners on the map that go into various different regions of America. So you have the Northeast... You have uh, the Californias, the Plains. Pacific. Yeah, yeah. I, excuse my lack of uh, great knowledge of American geography. Uh, and uh, or you have the South, and you have these event cards that will, you know, let you put out cubes, which are effectively, you know, swaying the state in your favor, like getting you the votes that you need. Or they will let you move your campaigner, and you know, your campaigner can put out more cubes in a different region or whatever, and. And because the game is tied to these historical events, when you play them out, uh, the landscape shifts in a way where it becomes historically familiar. Mm. So, for example, the starting card that every time you play as the opposition, you always start with, and it's likely that you're going to play that card first because it really sets up the whole kind of, you know, strategy, is called the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> and and so you play the patriarchy and as the patriarchy you establish yourself in the south uh so places like texas uh alabama uh and uh mississippi and stuff like that and then it becomes immediately very real uh and and as you're sort of swaying these events guided somewhat by our historical knowledge and somewhat by strategy, you are painting this landscape more and more. And then when something surprising happens, because again, these cards are really tied to historical events, uh, you'll be like watching the suffragist players suddenly just sweep up a lot of cubes and, you know, like suddenly like their strength in this region is so much stronger. How did that happen? And it turns out that the suffragist player played a card... Uh, played a card like Mary McLeod Bethune uh, that 
and and you go, why is it so powerful? And then you read the description. It says, an educator, an activist, Bethune urged fellow black women to vote and taught reading classes at night to help them overcome literacy tests. And and you're like, oh, okay, okay, I see what's happening here, right? And and it it makes you feel so tremendously at the same time. I don't want to say awful. It doesn't make you feel awful, but it makes you reflect on history in a way that I don't think a game quite managed to do for me before. Mm -hmm. Because what is happening, by all accounts, is absolutely preposterous. And if you made a really great point, Elaine, you said, if this was fictional, this game would not be okay. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Uh, Because because fiction couldn't go so wrong. Mm -hmm. But real life does. Mm -hmm. And it did, and it happened, and it's here, documented. Mm. And so whilst I'm talking about, I I sort of evaded talking about the mechanisms of this game. Whilst I'm talking about theme and documenting, I do want to talk a little bit about the production of Votes Mm. for Women. Uh, What a fantastically beautiful game. Uh, Not just because um, the board is really nice muted colors, and I found that so much more approachable accessible actually i think is the right word for me because i don't deal well with high contrast colors Mm -hmm. i find them quite loud and i struggle to distracting yeah i I, distracting i struggle to internalize the game i'm I'm more focused on the colors than i am on the game the muted colors really really helped uh the board looks gorgeous the cover looks gorgeous the cards look gorgeous uh but on top of that there's all these historical documents that relate uh, to the suffragist movement. Yeah, facsimiles. Yeah, uh, that are included in the game. They provide no game benefit. They are just there for you to learn, immerse, feel this subject. And a whole booklet on it as well. Mm. So uh, in as as an educational tool, and I don't want to say it like that because I, I think that undermines uh, the design, you know, but as an educational tool, it, it has this incredible simulationist power to put you in a place that you just like normally wouldn't be able to experience Mm. because you're not just going through history you're entangled in that history you get to manipulate its webs and see how it works how why things happened the way it happened Mm. Uh, and and what affected these historical outcomes that eventually transpired so in that regard it is absolutely fantastic and fabulous my one gripe is with the title words for women doesn't sound so great i i believe you told me that you found out that it was uh, the, the designer's wish was that it was votes to, for women yes uh, i think that would have been a much better title uh but it's votes for women you know it's just in i think in the 21st century with with the way marketing has gone and maybe that's intentional and reflective but it, it's gone a little bit too much like you know uh, big for ladies or whatever it, that kind of thing you know it just it doesn't it doesn't sound great um but at the same time you know it, it really stands out it's votes for women oh i guess that's what the game is about yeah um bringing your point that you made earlier about uh, war games because it is a, a kind of war game i mm-hmm. think the difference with this is that when we've played as you say we've not played masses of war games that's that's a fair yeah. point but the difference for me with this was that when you're normally playing a side in a war game, mm. I, I've never felt like I was actually playing as 
that team. I was just playing against my opponent. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, and, and so whatever they did during the game was just their tactical advantage or their maneuvers that they were doing to try and win the game that I was trying to win the game. Whereas this was very much the opposite of that, where you felt, or I, I felt as the suffragists that I was actually trying to rally against the patriarchy, mm -hmm. which was you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because that was the side you were playing. Um, I didn't just feel like I wanted to win against you. I wanted to win because... Pretty important history. to win that one, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, like any game, it doesn't actually change history. Yeah. Uh, the outcome of our game. Yeah. But that was that was an interesting feeling. And I agree with you that, that you get the feeling of being in this situation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, what I do want to add, I did say that I didn't... I didn't take my side, I took the subject very seriously. I did not take my side seriously because I mean, what a bunch of buffoons anyway, well, right? But but yeah. at the end of the game, and again, maybe this speaks to the game design a little bit, um, it came down to the last state, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, in that moment, I did not want to win anymore. I did start taking <laughs> it seriously, right? I was like, okay, okay, enough lampooning these idiots. It, I don't, I actually don't want to win, right? Mm. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to almost interrupt you, but it was that point where you kept showing me cards, going, look at what this card says, isn't this ridiculous? Yeah. And that was kind of how we played the whole game. Yeah. Like every time you were playing a card, you're like, Flaw, look at this. Yeah. And it was And And comedy. when you say this, right, it's yeah. like, you know, you made a cool move and I was like, you thought that was cool? Hey, watch out, Elaine, here comes xenophobia. Yeah, and you saw the kinds of things that these women were up against, mm. not just general concepts like patriarchy or xenophobia, but the actual bills or... People empowering them. People yeah. empowering them, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the policies that people had in their heads. And, and we are still fighting against some things like that today equally ridiculous mm -hmm. yeah and i think it contextualizes that it's sort of like you go oh how, how could this be oh that's how mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and 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 you get a great picture now having said all of that as as a historical simulation as as you know bringing this subject to life it works tremendously as a game I, I, there's a reason maybe we don't play a lot of historical war games they're not quite our bag uh, and, and i think the benefit of this design is that it's incredibly easy to understand um i don't know you read the rule book didn't you mm -hmm. how was the rule book yeah it was, it was fine it was fine it was yeah fine. there yeah, was no, also no problems with it uh watch it play the video yes. uh explains the game really well you could teach it to most people, mm. not to anyone, but to most people, mm. uh, because it sort of borders that that familiarity with risk, where it's like, you know, you're not rolling to defeat the other soldiers, but you are rolling to put down more soldiers, effectively, except your soldiers aren't soldiers, the cubes, except the cubes aren't soldiers, they're votes, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and there is there is sort of two stages to the game that make it a little murkier. First of all, like any area can have any number of cubes, uh, only of one side. So if you're like, 
like let's say there's opposition two opposition cubes in Texas and you want to campaign in Texas and you're the suffragist you know you might uh, roll some dice based on how many campaigners you have there uh, and then you will uh, for each success you will remove first of all the opposition cubes and then when there are none left if you have more successes left over you will you get to put your own cubes yeah you get to put your own cubes and it's not even successes it's like you roll a die and it says how many cubes you get to put down Mm -hmm. right um so it's very simple and intuitive in that way but then there is a stage of the game there's also this congress track if the congress track fills up then you're literally counting who wins the state Mm -hmm. if any state has four of that side then the state goes to that side Mm -hmm. And, you know, the suffragists need 36, the opposition needs 13. Uh, w- once one of these thresholds is reached, the game ends. Um, and anything you want to do, you have to play a card. You don't have to, however, uh, do the event on the card. So the events will do specific things. They'll say, put, you know, one cube on each, Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll list some states or you or know list regions or list regions and somehow interact with those regions or permanently affect um you know the rules for this round or the entire game uh for example instead of rolling d4s to campaign for each campaigner you'll roll d6s mm-hmm. um some events have permanent consequences uh so for example if let's say the 15th amendment gets passed it will then enable other cards to be played that otherwise before you simply couldn't mm. and and so knowing the history of 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 the time uh would give you a sort of knowledge as to like what might be the consequences of let's say passing the 15th mm. amendment um and but but again in in terms of game terms you have a map with areas you're trying to have more cubes on 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 an area if you have enough cubes you win the area win enough areas you win right that's essentially the mm. game sounds easy <laughs> sounds easy uh but i sort of recognize this formula quite well i i, I haven't played twilight struggle in real life but i've played the app quite a mm-hmm. bit so i'm familiar with the game uh i think i played 1960 making of the president but that was so long ago it's a faint memory mm. um but for me, this felt like like a distillation of these ideas, much in the same way that Turncoats is a mm-hmm. distillation of uh, The King is Dead. And I started to sort of miss that craft, you know? Mm. I started to miss um, the familiarity of, 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 of the systems and how they interact, because a lot of the times in our game, what it devolved into is rolling D4s or D6s yes, or and yes. seeing what number come up. You're not looking any longer at what the event on the card is or what the effect of the card mm. is. You're just trying to campaign for more votes. And I think what that does is it sells the game really well to someone who's really invested in this subject mm. because it doesn't matter that you're rolling dice you're you're sort of you're playing this out mm. right and you're seeing the depth of the subject so these dice rolls start to mean something mm. right but at the same time if if you are not as invested and it's hard not to be invested with the subject honestly uh, if you're not invested with the subject, then that it is just dice rolls. And did that detract for you? Like when it 
Yeah, when we first started playing, we were looking at every card and who was this person or what was this bill or what was this policy. We mm -hmm. were looking at every card that we were playing, right? Mm. But then as the game progressed, we were just playing cards in order to get votes. And I think it didn't take away from the game, mm -hmm. but it took away from maybe what the game is trying to do, which, and I don't know what the game is trying to do. I don't know if it's trying to teach you more about this subject because it certainly does do that. Mm. But there's a difficulty, I think, there's a balance between trying to play the game and win the game yeah. and actually learning what everything is doing because you could spend all night like looking over every card and what everything does. And I think there is an overwhelming amount of information in this box with n not just the cards not there is information there is flavor text i guess you would call it on every mm. single card but there is all of that uh facsimile copies of of everything that has happened and there's a whole booklet on everything that has happened during this period of time and i found that incredibly interesting mm. but i found that interesting outside the game like I wanted to read over those things outside the game and learn more about who these people were and what they did and the events that unfolded. And some of the things did come into the game, like like about the Civil War. So mm. if, if you have a Civil War card on the table already, other events can't be played. And that yeah. was because during the Civil War, the suffragists movement was downplayed a bit because there were other things happening in the country. Yeah. So you, you sense that history overall mm. but i don't know that it necessarily comes across during the game i i think it's an issue of familiarity and it's the same with, thing with twilight struggle again that game can feel quite um unwieldy if you're not familiar with it because you need to understand there's so many cards and there's so many ways you can build strategy around these cards knowing what cards exist. And you can't say that this game doesn't have depth mm -hmm. because my word, there are, there are so many things you could learn about how to manipulate the system. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the act of play itself is roll a dice, see how many cubes yes. you put down, right? Yeah. And I found that really difficult to engage with. Mm. And, and I sort of don't want to knock it down because I don't want it to come across like, oh, I had a bad time because I, all I did was roll dice or whatever, right? That is not what I'm trying to say, but that is a part, a small part of what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I understand what you mean. And uh, there were different points in the game where we were both saying, well, if you played this card slightly different, we weren't like trying to game for each other, not yeah, at yeah. all. But, but, you know, if you maybe removed my cubes first in this state and then you could put your own cubes, I mm -hmm. would be less likely to win this area yeah and that would help you and we were both doing that uh so yeah i understand what you mean and and sometimes maybe somewhat unfairly i was typecasting certain states because i didn't know what cards were available in the game i was like that state that state's not very progressive if i've learned anything from american news nothing good is gonna happen in that state so i should probably focus on that because i am the opposition right uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it wouldn't have really mattered. Yeah, in the game. 
You didn't have to have taken control of the southern states or whatever. No, but it might because there might be more cards that have events that will affect this those states, true. right? This That's what I mean by the that. Familiarity. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you need to be familiar with the game or familiar with American history. I don't know. Maybe a little bit of both. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Can I just mention, um, you said about the artwork in the game. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to make a point on that too. I totally agree with you that sometimes when you're playing a game, the amount of colours or what's happening on the board can be overwhelming. Like the artwork on the board can be overwhelming. And I really liked how this was so very bland mm. because it didn't detract from what you were trying to do yeah there was no pomp about it it was like a beige map beige in yeah. different colors beige purple or whatever beige green yeah map and this is what you were trying to do this is how you focus on what you're doing i just want to also for those listening who are familiar with historical war games say that when elaine says beige she doesn't mean historical war game beige <laughs> she means graphically pleasing beige <laughs> yes i do and that's all the cardboard for now. Thank you so much for listening. We'll read out more of your words on the next podcast, so please do keep them coming, either on our Discord server or email elaine at nopunincluded.com. On the next podcast, we'll be talking about Yokai Septet, Star Wars, the deck building game, Great Western Trail, Argentina, and our first impressions of Aeon Trespass Odyssey. So if you have any words of wisdom or any questions about those, please do let us know. In the meantime, Efka, if they want more pun-free fun, where can they find it? Uh, they can find it on our YouTube channel, uh, no pun included. Just type that into YouTube. It will come up. Uh, and also you can always back us on Patreon. Uh, that's where you support our work. And in this particular instance, you will get the full interview with uh, Jesse Earl, also known as Jesse Gender. Lastly, Efka, what is the game of the episode? I think that has to be heat. Pedal to the metal. Pedal to the metal. <laughs> <laughs>